The author's preface to the reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty-five, a forecast written in the year seventeen sixty-three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty-five, a forecast written in the year seventeen sixty-three by Samuel Madden. The author's preface. A preface, like a master of the ceremonies, introduces two strangers to an interview, and upon occasions of this nature the bookseller usually officiates as Sir Clement Cotterell to the reader. Footnote. Master of the ceremonies to George the Second and George the Third, from 1758 to 1774. End footnote. If we were to go on with our similes, we should compare an author to a convict at the place of execution for let him have talked ever so much, he still has a last word to say to the public. With regard to the tendency of the following history, as it is taken up at a what's-to-come period and begun in an era that will not begin these hundred years, it may be necessary to say a few words, whether critical or explanatory, whimsical or elaborate, shall be entirely submitted to the determination of the reader. The kingdom of Great Britain was divided into two powerful parties, as we are informed by our annals, when the great Dr. Swift took it into his head to write the history of Captain Lemuel Gulliver. The political tendency of that celebrated performance is too generally known to require any comment in this place. The dean, with the greatest concern, had long seen the distractions of the state, and knew that it would be utterly impossible in a direct chain of reasoning to combat with the force of popular opinion or to contend with those obstinate prejudices which, in a course of ill-judged education, are too often and too fatally imbibed. Sensible of this ineffectuality, that great man set about an undertaking which would produce all the consequences he desired, without seeming to labor for any, and fully expose the principles of faction without appearing the least solicitous to detect them at all. He wrote, he published, and succeeded, and the work is, at this day, one of the most masterly pieces of its kind in any language, and held in the highest estimation by the most sensible and judicious part of the kingdom. The modesty which is ever the companion of true merit would by no means admit your author to think of a parallel between this history and the travels of Captain Gulliver. Even to say he does not is a sort of presumption, as it is tacitly acknowledging the possibility of such a comparison. But the very same modesty induces him to hope that in the course of the following sheets the reader will not sit down to an entertainment utterly contemptible, for then it would be an unpardonable piece of ill-breeding to think of setting it before a guest. The generality of modern writers have a mighty trick of saying, to be sure they themselves are sensible the performance is trivial, poor, wants merit, and all that. But why, if they are sensible their productions are so very despicable, do they insolently think of offering them to the public? Why do they think of printing these very poor, trivial, and contemptible performances? Why? Why? Because? Because they neither think them poor, trivial, nor contemptible. Their very humility is nothing but an aggravation of their arrogance. For the greatest vanity a man was ever guilty of was to say he had no vanity at all. In the history of George the Sixth, we find few or none of those episodes or particular circumstances that might happen among the great men of his time. The historian has confined himself to the actions of the prince alone. 
and in the account of the exploits he little more than names any principal commander directing his whole attention to the conduct of the king. He paints him resolute, wise, and magnanimous at home, vigilant, intrepid, and fortunate abroad, successful against domestic factions, and victorious over foreign enemies, a promoter of arts and sciences, an encourager of religion and virtue, and, in short, draws him a very great king and a truly good man. We shall not offer so poor a compliment to the reader as to mention any personage of the present age of English growth, who deserves the character given to the hero of the future, but we shall very much pity his understanding if he meets with any difficulty in finding him out. In the course of the following sheets the reader's own reflection must frequently assist him in the elucidation of particular circumstances, for in performances of this nature it is totally impossible to be always as clear as a person could wish. There are such things as an attorney and solicitor-general, a court of king's bench and pains and penalties. It might be rather dangerous for the author to write with more perspicuity on some points. But there is no law hitherto established against thinking, so that while he is secure from the acquaintance of a messenger, our author in any passage which may carry the appearance of obscure gives the reader leave to think just what he pleases of the relation. The great contest that has long subsisted between two powerful factions affords the fairest opportunity for a satirical reader to exert himself, and to lash any error that may be found in the principles of either, even while he writes with a laudable view of reconciling both. Our historian in the gloomy portrait which he draws of the nation at the beginning of his work alludes very strongly to a late dangerous crisis when the kingdom was torn with party feuds and animosities, and when some of the greatest people risked their own properties without any concern to enjoy the malevolent satisfaction of injuring other people. The character of the future Duke of Bedford will easily lead us to think of a nobleman of the present times, who is headed in opposition to the government of his king, and the parliamentary proceedings in the reign of George the Sixth may be considered as a well-turned compliment to the legislature of George the Third. In the perusal of the ensuing history the author has dealt with a particular satisfaction on the encouragement given to men of genius, and the noble provisions which his hero allowed for cultivating the politer arts and sciences. The academy which he established for that purpose endears the monarch imperceptibly to the reader of taste, and was not injudiciously introduced to enhance the character of George, and to inspire an emulation of the most generous kind in the bosom of his predecessors. Learning, indeed, notwithstanding the eulogium which has been paid to some great names, has not found a sufficient encouragement hitherto in England, and it is rather surprising that every nation in Europe should have academies for promoting it but our own. Not to take up the reader's time, however, with reflections, which in the perusal of the following sheets must naturally occur to himself, it will be only necessary to observe further that the author, by making his hero conquer all France, and establishing him in the possession of that kingdom, seems to hint that our late treaty of peace was not altogether so advantageous as ministerial writers would have us think it, and that the moderation which we showed on that occasion was rather a little ill-timed. Upon the whole it is presumed that the history of George the Sixth will merit the approbation of the candid, and that the reader of sense will himself comment upon passages that would not be so safe for our author to explain, and make proper allowances from the nature of the subject, for any seeming heaviness of style which accidentally arises in the narrative. End of the author's preface. Recording by Philip Gould.